0: Welcome to Politics Considered, the show in which we discuss some things political. I'm your host, Bill Gallagher. On today's show, I will be discussing foreign policy and specifically hostage diplomacy with an exclusive interview with an internationally known expert in this field. I am thrilled to have as a special guest today, Jonathan Franks. Mr. Franks is the founder and president of Lucid Public Relations. Lucid is a Los Angeles-based crisis management and public relations firm. Mr. Franks has worked in high-profile crisis management, public affairs, and strategic communications. He has also worked in national politics and private practice in Washington, D.C. He earned his bachelor's degree in government and economics from Connecticut College and then went on to handle public relations for high-profile criminal cases at a major Washington, D.C. law firm. In 2006, he became staff assistant to House of Representatives Majority Leader Steny Hoyer, where he oversaw communications and logistics. In February 2008, he relocated to Los Angeles to work at a prominent PR agency, where he gained experience managing high-profile accounts. He represented the family of Trevor Reed and is credited with Reed's safe return home after three years In a Russian prison. Mr. Franks has been featured in several national news articles. After I heard him being interviewed on an NPR show, I was very impressed with his knowledge and his Frank approach. No pun intended. (laughs) I'm I'm thrilled to have him here today on the show. Welcome to the podcast, Mr. Frank. Thank you, sir. Thanks for having me. Well, let's just get right into it. Uh, Please talk about your background and what led you to work to the work you're doing today, in terms of helping negotiate the release of hostages and representing families. So I
1: I got into this space by accident in 2014. I was representing the celebrity um, and in fact, still represent the celebrity. And he got pressured into sort of getting involved in a case in Mexico of a Marine with PTSD who had made a wrong turn in San Diego, ended up forced into a Mexico only lane on the I-5 freeway and unfortunately, there was a gun in his truck. And rather than allowing him to turn around per his request, the Mexican authorities decided that perhaps there was a bribe to be had. And they he got arrested and came home nine months later. As we were kind of flying home from that ordeal, um, it was myself, my client, Governor Bill Richardson, and some other folks. And, you know, we were talking about, well, maybe we should do this again. And I said, you know, there's this Marine in Iran, Amir Hekmati. And Everybody looked at me like, uh, you know, this is nuts. You're never going to be able to get one from Iran. And, you know, um, the next day I called this family and started working with the team that they already had. And um, probably about a year and a half, two years later, after we'd been working on this a while, the, um, you know, Amir came home as part of the JCPOA deal. And I actually took a break and did some commercial work for a couple of years until one day I got a call from Amir saying, hey, would you represent? the mother of this guy that the Iranians are about to announce that they've got. And I said, sure. He had uh, gone to Iran to meet a woman he fell in love with online. Uh, it was his third trip and his third trip didn't go so well. Came home 683 days later and literally 10 days before Michael was you know, sent home. The Whelans actually asked me if I would work with the family of Trevor Reed, who his was in, in Russia at the time.
0: OK, so I want to get into that. Um... I just, for the benefit of the listeners, I just want to set the stage and just give a brief gestalt of this whole broad prisoner exchange issue. I'm going to quote Joel Simon in his December 20. 22 New Yorker article in which you were mentioned, Simon wrote, quote, for decades, the official U.S. policy for responding to hostage taking by rogue states or terrorist organization has been to make no concessions. The rationale is that any capitulation would encourage future hostage taking and undermine U.S. national security in the long term. In recent years, though, the nature of kidnappings has changed in a trend that began in the final years of the Obama administration and accelerated during the Trump administration. Foreign governments began imprisoning innocent Americans and using them as bargaining chips to pressure the U.S. As the war on terror has faded, autocratic regimes, not terrorist groups are responsible for the majority of cases in which U.S. citizens are being held captive overseas, end quote. I realize that's a long quote, but I really wanted to get that in to just give the broad view. And I'll ask you in a minute if you think that that is an accurate summation. But first, I want to also read what Simon said about you in that same article about Trevor Reed, the hostage that was finally freed. Quote, (laughs) Reed's most important communication ally was Jonathan Franks, a fast-talking public relations executive based in the Tampa Bay area who has advised clients ranging from the daytime talk show host Montel Williams... To the former CIA head R. James Woolsey. So I'm good with fast talking. By the way, I'm impatient. <laughs> I'm impatient with slow talkers.
1: Me too. I that that that's largely why I think Joel wrote that. He, he he spent a lot of time with me, so he's used to me by now. Fast talking is an
0: accurate. Outre- and I know I'm throwing a lot at you, but it was interesting to me. The, the article went on to say that using your connections as an aid to Congressman Steny Hoyer, you met with Republican leader Kevin McCarthy and many mm-hmm. others, and after you. Meet- Meeting, you organized a public protest. I guess you were frustrated. And then, after that public attention, the White House called you. Yeah, so, you do what it takes, right? And arranged a meeting with Reed's parents. And then, shortly after that, Trevor Reed was freed in a prisoner exchange. And then the article goes on to say that a week after Reed arrived back in the U.S., you and the families of other uh, U.S. hostages launched the Bring Our Families Home campaign. So it's, it seems clear to me from the article and everything else I read that Trevory would not have come home when he did were it not for you and your tenacity and from what I can tell you are It's high of our time That's that. a
1: nice that's a nice way of putting indefatigability. Um, I, I think the White House would pro- I don't I don't know how PG13 we have to put it, but I think the White House would go with pain in the ass. I mean Trevor's parents had gone out to protest. Uh, the president came to their hometown to the VA that their son got treatment at to hold a veterans event and had declined to meet with them. You know, sometimes when you've been working in the White House too long and you're in a, you know, you you've come out of Harvard and Yale and you just don't have any real world experience, you make very 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 gross political mistakes. Like leaving a set of parents from Texas, sta- a quite capable set of parents I might add, standing out in a parking lot in the freezing rain, which is political malpractice of the first order, but we um I knew I've known Joe Biden a long time. I knew exactly what would happen if they got in front of him because I know what kind of person Joe Biden is, right? So I and, knew that And what was, kind of
0: you do you mean like he's compassionate and that kind of stuff?
1: Very much so. I'm not sure I have seen anybody better at that level at dealing with these families on a and it is a completely authentic, right? There, I, I I grew up in this. I grew up in D.C. in politics. I have a built-in political BS detector. <laughs> I was in that room. I was in the Oval Office with the Reeds and for 44 minutes. And I can tell you 100% of that meeting was authentic, right? Staff didn't speak. I, I didn't speak, right? The president and the Reeds spoke. And that's the Joe Biden I know, right? The guy that had multiple people waiting for him and waved his staff off while he proceeded to show the Reeds all of the family photos that were behind his desk.
0: Yeah, I've heard when he's talking to someone, he doesn't like to be rushed to talk to somebody else. There's a famous thing where he was on the tarmac and Obama kept saying, Joe, we got to go. And he was talking to some person and he didn't want to go until he was done listening to them.
1: (laughs) That is why I knew that if we could just get around the staff, then the prisoner trade would proceed, right? And keep in mind, at this point in time, we think Trevor has tuberculosis, you know, by the second protest, right? Because, you know, they protested in March, right? March 7th or 8th or whatever it was in Dallas. And that produced a phone call from the president saying he'd schedule a meeting when he got back to DC, right? Uh No call came, And, you know, when normal Americans hear things like a meeting is gonna be scheduled short term, you know, they hear a a matter of maybe a week or two, right? They don't hear whenever it's politically convenient for us. So the White House clearly met, you know, they were playing word games the entire time. Oh, the meeting is going to be short term when the press was sort of all fired up and lobbing bombs at them for leaving these people in the parking lot, right? As the motorcade was pulling away after Biden spoke to these folks, right? They changed their term to, oh, meeting will be scheduled at some point. So the right? biggest
0: challenge for you is just getting past these gatekeepers and firewalls and wonky people. And you knew once you could get yeah. the president, then that was all you needed to move. OK, this
1: White House is way, way too stacked on Harvard and Yale and not enough University of Scranton. <laughs> and I'm the, look, I'm the only male in my family. Didn't go to an Ivy League school like, you know, I went to a baby Ivy, but still, you um, you know, It's not like I'm opposed to Ivy League education. I just think that there is a disconnect from people that have, are this smart, right? And the guys running the national security office, apparatus, as much as I give them a hard time for going to Harvard and Yale, they are that smart, right? They are genius level smart. Their problem isn't substance, right? Their problem is bedside manner, right? right? So- you know, I when I when I make a joke about there being too too heavy on Harvard and Yale and it being the president's biggest disability, I, I mean that it makes it difficult for a guy that is actually good at connecting with ordinary Americans, right, to do so when his staff is consistently getting in the way of it and giving up on everything that makes him special.
0: That's like a paradox. He needs more people like himself.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: Around. It, <laughs>
1: That's what Americans bought into, not these Harvard and Yaleys, right? That are that are, you know, what I they're, they're brilliant. Don't get me wrong, but there's a built-in elitism to people that have been in those ivory towers their whole life, right? Right. And sometimes it's good to just go out and get somebody that got a 4.0 at the University of Scranton.
0: Indeed. So now back to Trevor Reed. Where was he held, and how did he get there? Uh... Trevor
1: is a was at the time he went to Moscow in 2019. A former presidential guard marine, right? So he was not an ordinary marine. He was one of them. Well, the presidential guards do two things they guard the White House. So the marine at the West Wing door when the president is in the Oval Office, and they guard Camp David. It is an extremely elite assignment, possibly one of the most elite assignments in the Marine Corps. So he had gotten out, he was in school, you know, he had met a Russian woman, right? They had vacationed in Greece. I mean, she's fantastic. And He went to spend a couple months with her. He was learning the Russian language. He wanted to test out of his language requirement at the University of South Texas. And so this was sort of a combination, spend some time with his girlfriend and do a language immersion at the same time. And he had been to Russia before, visited her family, had no problems. So it never occurred to him that perhaps he would become the next Paul Whelan, right? He- And I'm not going to lie. I was in the same boat. Thought that there would they would never be so crazy as to take a second marine. But that's exactly what they did. Trevor had been at a party in a park uh, with his girlfriend and some of her business colleagues. She's a was a at the time a very promising young attorney. She now can't practice because she defended Trevor, you know, they were headed home. I'm just
0: curious. Why can't she practice? I mean, she said some pretty brutal
1: things about the Russian government.
0: Okay. So she's still there and she can't practice there. Okay. I got it. She is,
1: she is safe. I'm not going to say that she is outside of Russia. You know, so they were trying to get home. Trevor got ill. He's not a drinker, right? Like people that become presidential guard Marines and are able to get a Yankee white security clearance, are not are people that color inside the lines, right? These are not people that are out drinking at bars, right? I mean, that is a very difficult clearance to get and to maintain, and he has maintained it.
0: Yeah, no, um, they're cro- they're CrossFit and juicers and all that, right?
1: <laughs> yes, right. Like that, they, they, they are too perform. They're too Type A and performance based, right? It, it and and driven to be out of control of their faculties very often, right? So. He got sick and needed to, you know, get some fresh air, so he had him pull the car over. He got out, and the three petite young women he was traveling with were unable to get him back in the car. So they were on a busy street and worried about his safety, they called the police for help. And, you know, one of the things that bothers me so much about this case is this is the one and only one Trevor spent his, his spent his entire adult life serving his country and the one and only one time he needed help. The people that were supposed to help him set him up, they were supposed to take him to a hospital. That was the procedure. Instead, they took him to the police station. His girlfriend followed the car um, and, you know, he was there on unhand- He was taken out of the car, not in handcuffs. He was lit- left in a public lobby in the pr- in the jail. Not in handcuffs for hours. He was free to go. And then there was a shift change. And the new watch commander summoned the FSB. So when the FSB goons showed up, right, they interrogated him. The sum total of his interrogation was about his military service. Not one word about an alleged assault on police officers, right? It was completely made up.
0: So this only happened at the point where they ran his name and found out that he was a military person from the United States, right? Okay.
1: You know that he was an American in general, right? And I think it kind of spiraled from there. The story that they've come up with, right, is that Trevor from the backseat of the police car grabbed the police officer's arm who was driving, yanked it, causing the car to swerve and placing the officers in fear of their lives. Trevor, as his girlfriend put it, and as camera footage confirms, was drunk as a skunk. There was no way that he could have physically, he was slumped. He didn't, phys, he didn't reach across and grab this guy's arm, right? Like the, the body camera footage mysteriously disappeared. So did the dash cam footage. His girlfriend, being a Russian attorney, was very quickly gobbled up all of the traffic cam footage and private security footage along the police car's route, she had followed it. And, you know, this police car did not swerve, nothing irregular whatsoever, right? And when the officer was on the stand in in court, keep in mind, this is the complaining witness, right? When asked on cross-examination, are you sure the car swerved? The guy said, well, I thought so. And he said, are you sure? And the guy eventually said, I don't know. I'm not the Lord God. That was his testimony. (laughs) Kangaroo
0: court, basically.
1: Kangaroo court with the decided outcome. So I want to make clear to everybody, Trevor Reed did not break the law. He was framed after the fact with a pretextual charge because they wanted another American to trade for a terrorist, right? And while I was very much in favor of that, both of the prisoner trades that were done with Russia, like I want to be clear about what this was, right? This... The Russians were frustrated that Paul Whelan wasn't good enough to get Victor Boot and Yaroshenko back. So they picked up another American to strengthen their hand.
0: Can you just explain what the Robert Levinson Act is and what the U.S. policy on dealing with these hostage change issues is?
1: Yes. and So the Levinson Act is legislation that followed up on something President Obama did called Presidential Policy Directive 30, in which um, this followed... A series of brutal executions of Americans by ISIS that could have that were eminently preventable, right? And the blame for those executions, those lost souls, falls entirely with the Obama administration. They again were stuck up in Harvard and Yale in the Ivory Towers and couldn't get a decision made. So several Americans, including James Foley, is probably the most famous of them. Were beheaded as a result presidential policy directive 30 created the special presidential envoy for hostage affairs. And it made very clear that the United States would decline to prosecute Americans who engaged in private party ransom payments. Previously, it was illegal to make any sort of ransom payment whatsoever under US law. So they would threaten these parents right with jail if they made a ransom payment, right? And the Europeans who had been taken by the same people and who did pay the ransom are all alive to tell about it today.
0: Before we move on, who was Robert Levinson?
1: Robert Levinson is an FBI agent that was kidnapped by the Iranian regime on Kish Island. And they have yet to account for what happened to him, although they have hinted to a UN panel that he is dead. His family did heroic work getting Congress to pass legislation which for the first time required the. US government by law to seek the release of Americans held hostage or wrongfully detained abroad
0: okay well thank you for clarifying that so Sorry. roughly roughly how many um, innocent U.S hostages are detained abroad and who determines how they are classified? as innocent? And you know what countries are they in? There are about 54
1: of them. We think there are about 54 Americans. By law, the secretary of state designates somebody hostage or wrongfully detained, in which case their case comes out of consular affairs, which handles regular old detained Americans. And it's placed in the special presidential envoy for hostage affairs office. And he is obligated and, and, and empowered by law to seek their release. So, these folks, the 54 number comes from the James Foley Foundation, who's the lead NGO in the space, and they independently apply the Levinson criteria. There's 11 of them, and you know they apply those criteria without fear or favor, right? The U.S. government would tell you that there's less than 30, and they're wrong. They are refusing to designate entire classes of hostages for political reasons and because they are just terrified of upsetting any of our junior partners.
0: So what countries are they mostly in?
1: Iran, Russia, China, Venezuela. And I would honestly call that group of countries the axis of hostage. Almost all of the hostage taking is being done by these countries, right? And remember, we have had a major shift from the hostage problem being people being held by illegal armed groups to state actors, engaging in state-sponsored kidnap for ransom, aka hostage diplomacy.
0: Is the U.S. detaining foreign prisoners? And I I don't know how we determine. I guess other countries would say illegally, but we probably wouldn't. But I want to get your take on that and any idea of how many? The
1: Bureau of Prisons takes the position that um, giving us lists of prisoners of a particular nationality or citizenship is a violation of the Privacy Act. So we are not able to get definitive lists. I have been trying to get them for years. There are definitely Russians in our custody that the Russians want back and the Russians claim are wrongfully detained, right? There is very little basis for that, right? They are wrong, right? We are not wrongfully detaining any Russians. The Iranians, right, as much as they conduct prisoner trades, I had never thought that they were they particularly cared about any of their people in our custody it's just about you know it's a business for them it's a perverse business there are definitely iranians here you know when it's time to make a deal they express some interest And china is a very different thing while at times they have had specific asks like they were very upset about the huawei executive we had the canadians detain. um who let me just be clear While the Chinese were acting like this woman's rights were being infringed, she was living on house arrest in a multi-bazillion dollar mansion on the water in Vancouver. She (laughs) was fine, right? I have no sympathy for her whatsoever, right? Our hostages are living in third world filth in China right so i I have no interest in the chinese perspective on whether their people are innocent or guilty because they it is a dishonest perspective to the core the north koreans their hostage demands generally are for a prominent american to show up there in a plane that says united states of america and the venezuelans that that is kidnapped for ransom they had they they want trades they've got a guy currently on trial in miami um, a Colombian guy that they claim is a Venezuelan diplomat that was on his way to Iran when we picked him up in the Cape Verde's, um, shall we say an American court was less than impressed with this clown's claim of diplomatic immunity, right? I have no problem giving him back, right? He's an old guy. Right. He's a Colombian guy that stole from Venezuelans. I don't understand why we picked him up in the first place. Let the Venezuelans deal with him. He stole from them. Like, I don't understand why it's our problem.
0: So what is the distinction between a political prisoner and someone detained who is not in this category? And for example, the U.S. is detaining foreign uh, detaining foreigners. But according to the World Population Review, the U.S. does not currently detain, quote, political prisoners as right. we did during World War Two. So you can you give us the distinction as to what makes someone a political prisoner? And is this even a useful distinction? And do you do you also agree that the U.S. has no political?
1: I think political prisoners overused and ill-defined is I would think of it. Right. These are people that are in jail solely for thought crimes because of their beliefs, right, or because of things that they have said, that or written. That word has been, become so broad that I do think our hostages and wrongful detainees, like Trevor Reed, I do think he was a political prisoner in the sense that there was a clear political goal in his detention that had nothing to do with him.
0: This is something I really want to know. How many of our allies are currently detaining innocent Americans, and do you know what countries they are?
1: As the U.S. government currently sees it, or as
0: as you folks
1: at James Foley who apply the criteria without fear or favor think?
0: Let's me. go with James Foley and Jonathan Franks.
1: Great idea. They are there are political uh, there are wrongful detainees in Turkey. Uh, That's an allied nation Um, wrongful. detain. There's a serious, very serious case in the United Arab Emirates um, where the American has been there, is on the verge of death, has been there for 2008 and is really only in jail because he refused to work for a petulant Emirati royal. Egypt, that, that that is a place where we pretend we have no lawful, you know, wrongful detainees. Because, God forbid, we piss off the Egyptians. Saudi is another place where we pretend we have no wrongful detainees, again, over, you know, the, an insane fear of, you know, upsetting junior partners. And I would argue that we have one in Japan. Um I think neither the Foley, I want to be clear, though, neither the Foley Foundation nor the U.S. government agrees with me about that.
0: Can you talk um, about Japan? Because I, I just got on Twitter and I started following you and you'd mentioned Japan. So can you just talk about that briefly?
1: Yeah. And I mean, and like I say to people, it's good to take my ser- my Twitter seriously, but not literally. Um, <laughs> but this is the case of Lieutenant Ridge Alconis, who was an active duty Navy lieutenant um, who had a car accident is the result of a medical emergency has as the result of quite possibly one of the goofiest court processes i have ever been a part of in what is generally considered a pretty forward thinking place right um, their, their their judicial system is not up to international standards right it is regularly just torched by japanese legal scholars who rightly, call it a system of hostage justice. So, you know, the manner in which Lieutenant Alconis was detained and interrogating, it is completely unacceptable. Um, He was held incommunicado for 26 days, kept under bright lights, right? Sleep deprivation is a tactic. And he was interrogated eight hours a day about the same five minutes. They paraded him back to the accident scene. Parading detainees is one of the tells that there is a wrongful detention going on, right? They did this with Brittany Griner too. He was told both by DOD lawyers and his Japanese lawyer that the only way not to be separated from his three young children and the love of his life was to lie on the witness stand. And take responsibility for something he didn't do because otherwise they would have fried him.
0: This just seems outrageous to me. I mean, Japan gets high democracy scores. I think we think of it as a strong democracy. And what you just said about the court system is, is news to me. So I'm know i th- I'm pretty sure we give them a lot of money and mm-hmm. aid. So why the hell aren't we withholding aid or using our leverage?
1: I have been making this case for years. And my perspective on this is we watched these folks torch an active duty lab- Navy lieutenant, and we did nothing, nothing, right? Like our Department of Defense, I'm not sure it could have been any more impotent during this you know, process, right? The U.S. government generally, right? Utterly failed, Don't right? hold and, back. Don't,
0: don't hold back, Jonathan.
1: And, well, I mean, it was their day. De- I mean, we are sending our best and our brightest to Japan to make sure it doesn't become the latest and greatest Chinese province, right? right. Their behavior since they've done this has been arrogant, um, you know, um, juvenile and unbecoming of a G7 nation. And, yeah. you know, I, I, the, the truth hurts sometimes, but that's that's how I see it. We have 12 status of forces prisoners in Japan, meaning U.S. service members that are currently serving Japanese prison terms. Wow. let are take the 50,000 U.S. troops. The U.S. military is overwhelmingly white. You want to take a guess as to how many of those 12 troops are white? Yeah. In I, Japanese custody.
0: Um, yeah. A small percentage. Zero. Doesn't surprise me at all.
1: So Bridges Samoan. So, you know, I think there is one. I think he's the only Asian Pacific Islander. Um, I think there's a Hispanic guy and the rest of them are african American.
0: Is it, right. because of, is it because of racism on their part or yep. they don't get the attention by the media because they're not white?
1: Well, none of their cases really got attention from the media. They're all guilty. Let me just be very clear about that. I'm not saying that they have anybody other than Ridge Alconis in, like, you know, improperly. I'm just saying I find it unfathomable that in a military We have 50,000 troops there, overwhelmingly white, and we don't have one of them in Japanese jail. Not one of them has committed a crime serious enough to be in Japanese jail. That blows my mind. And Um, it makes me wonder something about their court process and whether they are just, in fact, that racist. Right. And, you know, it is something that has plagued them for years.
0: Interesting. There is
1: no question about the racism that non-Japanese people And certainly non-white, non-Japanese people experience there.
0: Okay. For the record, um, the State Department has an open invitation to be on politics considered. So now I want to get into a real hot potato. Uh, Mm -hmm. I want to talk about Brittany Griner. Okay. I'll just tell you, you know, after I learned of her impending release, I was elated. You know, I thought it was great. And then within an hour, there was all this backlash and criticism, largely from Fox not going to call it news, and, <laughs> and well, it just isn't. And I agree. I and, agree. And politicians on the right that just did not want President Biden to have any wins. You know, it's very cynical and sad. But mm-hmm. so, notwithstanding the raw politics, I just want to get your reaction to some of these responses. Now, some of them are nonsensical. Some argued, um, again, mostly these politicians on the right, that until Paul Whelan, who has been in Russia longer than Greiner, until he can come home, Greiner should have stayed there. And I know that you were deeply disappointed that Paul Whelan was not released. And you you told USA Today at the time, quote, Paul Whelan has been let down and left behind three times by two presidents. And I think I think most hopefully all Americans share your sentiments but is it true that you don't agree with this notion that it's all or nothing?
1: Oh, I mean, that perspective is just flat out ignorant, right? If the truth is that they could only get one and not two, and I let me just be clear, I'm not sure that's true, but I'll take them at their word, then they had a moral obligation to do the deal and all these critics are either racist or homophobes and just trying, I mean, I did not see any intelligent criticism of that deal. Right. I I saw a whole bunch of bad faith nonsense right from, you know, um, random bureaucrats out in the agencies with an ideological perspective on Victor Boot. Um, Well, I want
0: to I want to talk about Victor Boot. And but but since you mentioned homophobia, mm -hmm. Donald Trump, I don't even know if I should dignify this, but (laughs) Donald, Donald, former president Donald Trump, said that Griner, quote, openly hated our country. Now, I attribute this to racism and her support of Black Lives Matter. And many others on the right also seem displeased that a gay black woman who was involved in, you know, Black Lives Matter was released. And, you know, this just offends me. And I I assume it offends you. um, Oh, yeah. But let's talk about uh, Victor Bow because... These arguments might be the closest to being reasonable, although we'll talk about that. So Representative Kevin McCarthy, who you have met, I guess, and he was he was not yet speaker. He went on Fox to condemn the prisoner exchange. And he said, quote, it made us weaker. And he said, quote, it made Putin stronger and it made Americans more vulnerable. And Florida Senator Rick Scott tweeted that. Quote, for Biden to give Putin a dangerous arms dealer is weak and disgusting. And Ted Cruz, you know, Ted Cruz, who apparently did nothing publicly to help Trevor Reed's family, he criticized the swap and saying, quote, will encourage terrorists and rogue regimes to seize more Americans. Okay, so you get the point. So. I just want to know about your thoughts about Victor Bell and these arguments that he need to stay in prison here.
1: When we first started with Trevor, I was adamantly opposed to trading Victor Boot, and so was his parents, right? We had a shift, right, around the It was about six months before Trevor got out. He had been held incommunicado for 232 days. Well, it was about 200 at the time, and Trevor's parents asked me to call Victor's lawyer, and Ask Victor and his wife for help. And that is what I did. I called his lawyer and I said to him, Look, I need you to get, I need you to do whatever it takes to get the Russians to put this kid on the phone with his parents. Right. And if you and your client pull that off, you're going to find that it's a very pleasant experience. Right. And, you know, it took them about 30 days, but all of a sudden, one day, the Russians reversed course and I I firmly believe it was after Mrs. Boot called and chewed out the prison, right? And basically did a, do you know who my husband is? Um, So they radically improved Trevor's conditions of confinement, the Boots. They're responsible for that. They didn't ask for anything in return and they're improvement to his conditions lasted until the president got up in Warsaw and randomly suggested regime change in Russia um, when the president did that everything changed right they the Russians reacted to this in real time um it's a reckless thing to say and it, it did hurt Trevor
0: so I just want to ask you because you know the United States most people have this law and order we can't let people out a message that send yada yada what did Victor boot what was his alleged crime? And I take it you're fine with his release. Can you yep. just, okay.
1: I have, since I have serious problems with the way Victor was set up, I'm not defending him as a human, but they are, they, we, we, we don't use pretexts in this country, right. To put people in prison for non-chargeable offenses. Right. And that's what was done to Victor. The DEA woke up one day in I think it was 2006 or seven, and decided they wanted to uh, to arrest Victor. There was no probable cause, right? They just decided to go set him up. They went out and hired two criminals that were paid 10.2 million dollars of U.S. taxpayer money to set him up for about nine months of work. And wow. so they, so Victor, like when he he had been retired from whatever it was that he was doing for some time, he fell right into their trap and eagerly so. And, uh, you know, um, at least said that he was willing to sell a bunch of stinger missiles to FARC terror, what he thought were FARC terrorists who were going to use them against Americans. Now, um, at the time, we didn't have any American forces in Colombia that we were uh, admitting, at least. So I'm curious which Americans those stinger missiles were actually going to kill. Right. If I sit here and I I say I'm going to kill an American in Alaska this afternoon and I'm sitting here in Florida, is that a serious threat or is that just puffery? Right. Right. So so
0: so basically what you're saying is it was it was reasonable to let him go. He wasn't um, a threat and there was no point in continuing to detain him.
1: Because he was already, he had been in custody, right? He had done two years in Thai custody, which is really difficult custody. And then he had done, by the time he was released, he had done 12 here. And he had four to five to go. So with each day, the leverage that Victor gave us was decreasing. We were going to have to give him back for free, no matter what these ideologues out in the agencies thought, right? And so- my perspective is, why not get something in the deal? I would have had a very different perspective if he was newly incarcerated at the time they were trying to pull this.
0: Okay. So I want to talk about detained journalists. This has mm-hmm. been in the news a lot. So Washington Post columnist, Paul Khashoggi, just a little background. So he Khashoggi wrote a monthly column in the Washington Post in which he criticized The policies of the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, the son of King Salman, and the de facto ruler of Saudi Arabia. So he was killed in Turkey in the Saudi consulate by the Saudis. The Saudis initially denied it, and then they admitted to killing him. But, you know, and then they uh, they took responsibility and then they fired some people and then some watchdog groups said that it was sort of kangaroo court. But before I get your response, I just have to talk about former secretary of state under President Trump, Mike Pompeo. So Pompeo just released a book. Maybe that means he's running for president. I don't know. But he released a book in which he seemed to blame The victim here and insinuate that Khashoggi was guilty by association. In his book, he wrote that Khashoggi was, quote, cozy with terrorists supporting Muslim Brotherhood. And apparently Khashoggi was neither a member of the group or a supporter of terrorism. And then Pompeo goes on to say, that Khashoggi was not a real journalist, but rather an activist. And so Fred Ryan, the publisher of The Washington Post, where he worked, issued a statement decrying Pompeo. And Fred Ryan said that Pompeo's statements were shameful. He said that the fact Pompeo, quote, would spread vile falsehoods to dishonor a courageous man's life and service as as a ploy to sell books is hardly surprising, end quote. So, what do you make of all that? I know I threw a lot at you, but I'm interested Mm -hmm. in what you think about Pompeo's statement.
1: Well, for one thing, I'm really glad that he decided not to run for president because he doesn't belong within (laughs) miles of the White House. Um, (laughs) I
0: didn't didn't realize he decided not. He did.
1: You know, I honestly I think it's his wife that wants him to be president more than anything else because I think she sees it as an opportunity for her to be like famous. But um, (laughs) I I, I didn't bother reading his book. Um, I think. You know, I I, nothing that that man says is useful. So I didn't feel the need to waste time reading things that were useless. Um, I think his perspective on a lot of thing is a bunch of useless, you know, bravado that he can't back up. Right. Mr. You know, he talks a lot about swagger right i don't know that i see his term as secretary of state as, slagger, as swagger as much as i often see it as wet noodle with some tough talk
0: yeah i really appreciate your candor i thought maybe you were going to run for office but i'm guessing not <laughs> then <laughs> you speak the truth <laughs> but well, i'm never going to run for office because
1: um this mouth is probably best in the private sector
0: never say never <laughs>
1: So, Trust me, I'd have to write a book about my 20s before I could run for office.
0: So now let's talk about Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gerskovich. And I don't know if I pronounced that right. Gerskovich. Did. He's been in the news a lot. He's the first American journalist detained in Russia on spying charges since the Cold War. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken said last week that the U.S. is intensely engaged and indicated the U.S. had a special channel for negotiations with Russia and Russia has hinted at a prisoner swap after they adjudicate him. So what are your thoughts about this and how should the U.S. handle this and what should the State Department do now?
1: I think this is the most audacious kidnapping that I'm aware of that the Russians have done since the Cold War. And I think kidnapping a journalist is one very small step shy of kidnapping a diplomat on the on the outrageous scale. Um this is a transparent attempt to uh, leverage more guilty Russians out of prison. Um, and one of the things that frustrates me, right and then I'll be honest, the US does the same thing. But there is a limited universe of people that the Russians want, right? They, they don't care about most of their citizens, right? Um, so it's a limited universe in going through with, you know, running through a show trial as a condition for making one of these deals has never under, it's never made sense to me. Right. Um, Putin, one man controls that country.
0: He can make a prisoner trade any day he wants. So you're saying that I didn't mean to interrupt, but you're saying we should try to uh, get them home before they do this show trial. Yep.
1: And reason being right. A the show trial is just going to cause chaos in the United States, right? It's one of the, um, I am convinced that one of the goals of Putin's behavior, right, is always to cause chaos in the United States. And that, I think, is about 50 to 60 percent of the reason they took Brittany Griner, right? Because I think it was a crime of opportunity. And they they looked and said, wow, look at the number of culture war cleavages we can exploit in the United States.
0: Exactly. With this yes.
1: Right. And Evan, um, you know, being a reporter, right, was going to create the same kind of wave of attention that Brittany did. And I, I, I suspect that they are upping the ante and trying to get either a bigger prize, right, or this was a wholly impulsive action, right? Mm-hmm. He was a petulant response to a bunch of spies being taken. In I think one's in Brazil and a bunch are in Europe. Right. But the Russian security services had a bad couple of weeks. And, you know, allied our allies came up with, a you know, came to be and have the custody of many of them. So I think that they got upset that they lost a bunch of spies. Right, they needed more leverage because the U.S. wasn't doing what they wanted, and Paul Whelan wasn't good enough anymore. If they just kidnapped a normal civilian, would it have gotten that much attention?
0: Right, and so what do you think they should? I mean, I've heard you say that, and this sort of just makes sense intuitively that uh, the chances decrease with the amount of time, and we need to just act immediately. So, what can the state? What should the State Department do right now? They
1: need to go make an offer, right? whether we like this or not, whether we find it icky or not, the rubric that we are in is kidnapping for ransom. Right. So we have two choices, right? (laughs) Let the hostage languish and maybe die or do what it takes to get them back, right? And since there's no option to do that by force in Russia, although I would be amenable to doing it by force, but not in Russia, um, it's going to be a horse trade. And one of the points that has been made to me by a very prominent terrorism expert is when this stuff happens, the U.S. government needs to rip the Band-Aid off immediately, right? Yeah. Because the dilly-dallying while we think in circles and try to figure out how to do a prisoner trade and resolve the politics of it, let's, you know... Be honest, the resistance to prisoner trades that this administration had at first was political and they had the politics all wrong, which they've admitted um, to their credit. That terrorism expert pointed out to me that the damage done to our body politic by dilly dallying is way worse than the damage done by making the deal.
0: Right. Yeah. I And okay, that makes sense to me. So and
1: are we always going to have idiots in the party opposite? Um, You know. Ankle biting at these deals. Yeah, I think what Kevin McCarthy said, and I think I said it pretty well in the Joel Simon article. I think what he said about Brittany Griner was a complete betrayal of these families. And quite frankly, you know, inconsistent with what he said to me while looking in my eyes. Right. So, I mean, he he, that's that says a lot about Kevin McCarthy, doesn't it?
0: Well, this hyper negative partisanship is just tearing us apart. And that's a Mm -hmm. podcast for another day. But (laughs) I want to (laughs) discuss I want to discuss something that I think you have probably known about for years, but um, it just made it into the press. So. Mm There was a recent news report in the, I think it was in the New York Times about um Reagan, the Reagan campaign using American hostages to defeat then incumbent President Jimmy Carter. So mm-hmm. in 1980, the Iran hostage crisis basically paralyzed Carter's presidency, it was hurting his reelection efforts and many experts think that if Carter could have freed those 52 Americans held captive before election day he might he probably would have been reelected according to these reports then candidate Ronald Reagan sent a contingent to several middle eastern capitals to meet with the regional leaders to tell iran not to release the hostages before election day wow so they assured them that Reagan after he would be elected would become president and then give them a better deal Now, I think the reality is this is at odds with the mythology that Iran only released the hostages because they knew Reagan would retaliate and perhaps not declare war on them. So that was sort of the Reagan line. But the idea that Reagan would intentionally ask Iran not to release U.S. hostages just seems so, I don't know, so unpatriotic and immoral to me. So did I get this right or leave anything out? And what's your take on it?
1: My take on it is it's unconscionable, right? Delaying a release even one day for political reasons is unconscionable, right? I look back, there was a release from Myanmar of, or Burma of the journalist Danny Fenster, right? And Governor Richardson went and picked him up, right? And the government has been very bitter about that for a long, ever since, right? And they're Pitch is their, their 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 argument is that you know they would have gotten Danny out in a month or two, right? So their pitch is that they're upset at Governor Richardson for saving an American journalist between 30, 60, and 90 days worth of very difficult custody in Burma, right? That's really their position. So I think it's a perfect example the Reagan situation of how toxic, Paul, it gets when politics get involved in these cases. Right. And we should be out there resolving them without fear or favor. We certainly should not be making deals that involve allowing an American to sit in prison even one more day longer than necessary to achieve some broader political or policy goal. Right. Like we either have to decide to take care of our citizens or We need to be honest with our citizens and say, when you leave this country, you're entirely on your own. Your government won't help you unless it's politically convenient.
0: That frank and to-the-point statement is going to have to be today's last word. We're going to segue from specific hostage negotiation to a broader discussion of foreign policy. In part two of my interview with Jonathan, I will ask him about foreign policy more generally. He has worked in D.C. for many years and has worked with many in Congress and the White House, and I am curious about his take on foreign policy. I'm going to ask him to grade recent U.S. presidents on their foreign policy. So please join us for part two. We welcome your feedback. Please follow the show on Twitter at Politics Cons. That wraps up this podcast. Until next time, be kind to yourself and others.